telling your teenagers about sex, you're a little late. You, you, uh, that's, that's something that needs to happen way before then. How many of you guys have boys right around the age of seven or eight? Anybody? Okay, here you go. That's about time you think that's too early. It's not too early. It's too early for you, but it's not too early for them. But that's a whole other issue. You guys doing all right? Yeah. Gets real quiet when you start talking about that stuff, you know? <laughs> well, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for, uh, we thank you for rain, and then we thank you for sunshine. We thank you that both come from your hand. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for grace that comes in so many different packages and so many different provisions that we tend to take for granted. But it all comes from your hand. And we have experienced it. And we want to thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your favor and for all that we enjoy and for all that we experience. Uh, the comforts we have are beyond belief. We live in an age where, uh, where there are antibiotics, there's penicillin, there's uh, stuff we take for cholesterol. We, we, uh, we, we have so much that we have been given from your hand. So we are here tonight to acknowledge that you are our creator and that you are our Lord and that you are our teacher. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us what we need tonight because we have needs. We have different needs because we're coming from different places. We have different issues in our lives. Uh, we, are, uh, we are experiencing different things. And some of us come in here tonight and we're, we're pretty pumped and we're pretty excited because of how things have gone over the last day or two. Others of us are carrying a heavy load and a heavy burden and uh, although we may look all right on the outside, we're dying inside. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're the one who meets needs. We pray that you'll take the scriptures and apply them. Uh, energize us. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Correct us if that needs to be taken care of. Uh, we submit ourselves to you here tonight. And we acknowledge these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We on okay? You guys hearing me all right? I'm kind of getting a muted, muffled. Not coming out of there. It's just coming out of the uh, sub. So. Okay. Yeah, you may have to just. I'll, I'll crank it up some more. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> you may be familiar with Matthew Henry, uh, one of the great uh, biblical scholars. Uh, you might have Matthew Henry's commentary in your library. It's. Uh, that, that is a volume that a lot of people start with. Uh, a one-volume commentary on the scriptures you can get by Matthew Henry. Uh, Matthew Henry had a situation that occurred in his life where uh, one day as he was making a journey, he was robbed, and everything was taken from him. And that night, he made a notation in his diary, as he did every night, and uh, here's what he wrote about that day. He said, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, 
because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. There's a thankful spirit. He was thankful that he was robbed rather than he was the one doing the robbing. In the section of Joshua that we're going to look at tonight, it starts off with a robbery. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Achan, A-C-H-A-N. And if I was going to title this thing tonight, I would call it Why Achan Ached. Because Achan uh, is a man who is remembered uh, for a robbery and for the consequences that took place in his life and in the life of a number of other people uh, because of his uh, disobedience. And we're in Joshua 7. We're working our way through Joshua. Uh, to give you a context, here's what has occurred thus far. Uh, they have crossed <clears throat> the Jordan River. God, God parted the Jordan River at flood stage uh, to get them into the Promised Land. They crossed at the worst possible time. Uh, what we saw here last night, we had, we had flash flood warnings, and some of the creeks that we're familiar with were swollen, uh, were rising quickly. Well, the Jordan River, where they crossed, is, was known at this particular time of the year to be 150 feet deep and a mile wide. It was a raging torrential body of water. That's when they were told to cross. That's when God parted the Jordan River as he parted the Red Sea. And they crossed on dry land. They got to the other side. They took memorial stones out of the middle of the dry riverbed as the priest held the Ark of the Covenant. They stacked up stones on the west side, on the west bank, which we hear a lot about these days. They stacked up 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes. Then they took another 12 stones, stacked those up in the middle. So you had two stones. Those were memorial stones. And the reason they put those stones in there Scripture says, so that when your children ask you, <clears throat> what do these stones mean? That they could tell them about the miracle that God performed to get them in the promised land. Then they get on the other side, and immediately after celebrating this tremendous victory, God says, Joshua, I want you to take all the men, and I want you to circumcise them. Kind of not what they were thinking about in terms of a victory celebration. Uh, they had something else in mind, but they needed, to, they needed to renew the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of which was that a Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day, but when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they didn't circumcise. So they circumcised. They're only seven miles away from Jericho, the most formidable of all the walled cities of the Ites, the Canaanites and the Amorites. Now they're going to take on this uh, massive uh, walled city. You probably know that story, how they marched around it, Six days on the seventh day, what happened? They shouted, the walls collapsed, they go in and they clean them out. Uh, now that brings us to Joshua chapter 7. So they have seen two great miracles occur uh, for them. And in Joshua 7, right on the heels of, uh, of the conquest of Jericho, we read these words. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now what is this talking about? 
If you flip back to Joshua 6, verses 17 and 18, they're getting ready to go in and they're going to take Jericho. Now, this was a massive city. It was a walled city inside the walls. It was about a seven-acre uh, plot of land that's set up on a hill. Uh, two outside walls, about 30 feet high. Uh, outside wall was about 12 feet thick. Inner wall was about six feet thick. When this city collapses by the power of the Spirit of God, one of the things that they were told before they were going to go in there was uh, verse 18. Actually, verse 17. It says, And the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So they weren't to take anything. And there was going to be all this booty. There was going to be all this loot. There's going to be silver, gold. There's going to be all this precious stuff. Uh, but it was very, very clear, don't take any of that stuff because that all goes into the treasury of the Lord. Uh, everybody understood it. Couldn't have been more clear. Uh, those are the ground rules. They go in, take the city, but you see the word but in chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban for Achan. Now, you know what's interesting about this? It says the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. But actually, it was one guy who acted unfaithfully. But it says the sons of Israel. See, there's a principle there, and the principle is this. Uh, we never sin alone. Ever. I have a book in the car that, uh, it's about that thick. I was going to bring it up, but it was too heavy for my rotator cuff. It is a book that uh, basically talks about the fact that uh, there should be no laws in this nation. I forget the title of it. Big red book. But basically, the gist of the book is there should be absolutely no law made as uh, to inhibit the behavior or activity of consenting adults in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the, uh, it, the book is endorsed by the rock singer Sting, right on the front. One of the most brilliant pieces he's ever read. <laughs> Which right there, you want to run out and buy the book. Uh, so it's got a chapter on marijuana. Doggone it, that just ought to be legalized. It's got another chapter on sodomy. I mean, hey, what's the problem here? You know, let's get with it. Uh, all these, and they talk about the laws and the money that's spent in order to legislate morality. When you read the introduction, then the guy finally, about three pages into it, gets, gets down to the root question and when he says that whenever you enact the law, it's going to legislate somebody's morality. And you know what? He's right. Every, we've heard this. We've heard this, that, oh, you're just trying to legislate somebody's morality. Every law is legislating morality. The question is, whose morality is it going to legislate? Somebody's morality is going to make a call. Somebody's morality is going to make an influence, one way or another. Um, God's running the show here. 
And by the way, God's always running the show. God has given uh, a standard, and God in the Old Testament had given his law. And in this specific situation, God could not have been more clear when you go into Jericho when you go in to Jericho and you take none of that belongs to you, it all belongs to me. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully, but it was one guy. You know why that you, you know why it says that? Is because we're all connected. Uh, it, it's a myth of this culture that uh, that everything is okay, and this big, big red book talks about that this that as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. There is not a sin in the world that doesn't hurt somebody. Um, not one. Because we're interconnected, because no one lives in isolation, because there are always consequences, and because there are always uh, ripples that, that others by the very nature of how life is put together and civilization is put together, when a wrong, when I do a wrong, it's going to affect those. Somebody around me is going to be affected in a negative way. Uh, there is a corporate element. None of us live in total isolation. We are connected. We are part of families. We are part of communities. We are part of uh, nations. We are part of churches. And uh, this guy, Aiken was an integral part. He was just one guy out of two million Jews, but he acted unfaithfully. Now, the, the basic problem that Aiken had was that he wanted to get rich quick. That was the basic problem. Um, you're, you're going to see here later, in fact, take a look down at uh, verses, um, uh, verse 20 of chapter 7. He, he, he lays it on the line after they finger him, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. But he, he basically says, here's what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle. A mantle is a, is a coat. It's a robe. Uh, and this was not just any coat or any robe. Uh, this was from Shinar. This was a, a place that was known for these robes. It, it, was the, uh, it was the Rolex of robes, of coats. Uh, it was the Lexus of, uh, of coats, of robes. I mean, this was the crim of the crim. This was top of the line. So he sees this coat, he sees this robe, and then he sees 200 shekels of silver, and then he sees a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So that's what this guy did, and this is what he took. So what was his root issue? He wanted to get rich. And because that was a desire in his heart, uh, it caused him to go against the clearly revealed will of God. Now, there's nothing wrong. Let's make a distinction here. There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide for your family. If you don't want to provide for your family, there's something wrong with you. That's your job as a man. Uh, if anyone doesn't provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever, the Scripture says. So, uh, it's a good thing to work. It's a good thing to want to uh, take care of those you love. It's a good thing to want to make progress in your career. Nothing wrong with that. But you see, in 1 Timothy 6, turn over there with me if you would. In 1 Timothy 6, it talks about the all-consuming desire 
to get rich. Now, usually, we don't preach against this. In fact, if you watch Christian television, they're for it. This um, concept of getting as much as you can. Note 1 Timothy 6, if you would. Uh, Let's start with verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And everybody said amen. You know what? If all I had was food and, co- and, and covering, you know what I would be? I'd be ticked off. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be a little upset? Wouldn't you wonder where God was? If you just had food, and what does it say? And covering. That was it. That's all you had. I, I think that's a fair... Uh, I think that's a fair statement to make about all of us. If that was all we had, we'd be just a little disappointed and wondering where the goodness and kindness of God was in our lives. Why why is that the case? Because we have been given so much. Uh, The bar in this country has been raised so high. We we live like kings. The poorest guy in this room lives like a king. I don't care who you are. Compared to the rest of the world, they would look at your life and they would look at your lifestyle and say you're royalty. Um, Isn't it interesting that those of us with so much have the greatest struggle with contentment? Just an amazing thing to me. He goes on and he says, but those who want to get rich. He's not saying that those who want to do a good job. He's not saying that those who work hard. Uh, you know, the, kind of the way things work is that if you work hard and you do a good job, uh, there's, a, there's a book that's out there called um, Do What You Love and the Money Will Come. Uh, it's a great title. It's kind of a lousy book, to be honest with you. The title is tremendous. Do What You Love and the Money Will Come. If, if, you, if you have the privilege of working in an area that you're interested in and motivated in, uh, you're not going to be a guy who gets up every morning and you dread going to work. Uh, if you're one of those guys that can't believe you get paid to do what you do because you love it so much, you're a fortunate guy. And it's not uncommon because you're so highly motivated and because you, you work hard and because you do a good job, that reward will come your way. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone that's got an inner motivation to want to get rich. That kind of motivation gives way to a compromise when it comes to biblical principles and uh, biblical morality because you see the desire to get rich is so strong, those, uh, those guardrails which God gives to us to protect us, they tend to be ignored. That's exactly what Achan did. He wanted so badly to get rich that he went against the clearly revealed Word of God that none of that belongs to you, it all belongs to me. He went ahead and he did it anyway. Because of that desire. That's how strong it was in his heart. You see. And they didn't have Tony Robbins seminars back then. And he didn't have CDs and tapes that he listened to. And he didn't go hear this and do all that. See, that's just, uh, that was just in his heart. Uh, and it was strong. Now, that, that verse goes on and says, interesting verse. Those who want to get rich. 
fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, and you see the two are equated here. Uh, those who want to get rich in that kind of way, again, this isn't wanting to get ahead or wanting to provide. It's not that. This is a deeper issue. See, this is an issue where down deep you love money. There's a section in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus. Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They loved it. You see. Tough issue. Hard issue. Because you've got to have money. You've got to have it. Um, Joe Lewis said, uh, I don't love money, but it calms my nerves. <laughs> I think Joe's right. You know? When you got a few bucks, it kind of calms your nerves. And when you don't, it kind of makes you a little anxious, you see? Uh, but the issue here is wanting to get rich, and the flip side of that, if you will. Heads is, you want to get rich. Tails is, you love money. That was the issue in Aiken's life. And that particular issue, unchecked in his life, had tremendous ramifications, not only for him, but for those around him, because that sin, when it was given its unbridled way, uh, brought tremendous havoc, as we'll see in the next verse. So let's go back to Joshua 7. Uh, and on your way there, let me read a quote to you from John Piper. In his book, Desiring God, John's got a great, great picture here. He says, picture... 269 people entering eternity in a plane crash in the Sea of Japan. Before the crash, there was a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, a missionary kid on his way back home from visiting his grandparents. After the plane crash, they stand before God utterly stripped of MasterCards, checkbooks, credit lines, image clothes, how to succeed books in Hilton Reservations. Here are the politician, the executive, the playboy, and the missionary kid, all on level ground with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands, possessing only what they brought in their hearts. How absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day, like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets and in the end is so weighed down by the collection that he misses the last train. But that's how so many guys live their lives, you see, um, trying to accumulate. We'll, we'll get into that here in just a minute. But back in Joshua 7, we're introduced to Achan. He violated the band. Um, and then verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho up to Ai, just a few miles to the west, which is near... Um, uh, Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, uh, for they are few. Now, they've just taken Jericho. Uh, Jericho was, was the biggest city. Ai is, quite frankly was a good-sized city, but not anything near Jericho. 
Now, you've got to understand something about the context here. Uh, coming off of the defeat of Jericho, Israel was at the absolute pinnacle of power. Uh, the United States of America, we're the top dogs right now, militarily. Uh, so, so they hit the Twin Towers, and we're tracking these suckers down. And, and we're, we're developing, um, I saw on uh, Fox the other night, because these Al-Qaeda guys, they're, they're in these nooks and crannies in the mountains in Afghanistan. We've got certain bombs that are tracking these guys down. But now that they're devel developing nuclear, uh, small kiloton nuclear bombs that they're going to be able to drop, and those suckers will go down two, three, four hundred feet before they detonate. Just, just to make sure we can, we can take care of them. Because right now, some of them are escaping, as you know. Uh, uh, we're putting the, the full arsenal of the United States. I mean, we send aircraft carriers. We send destroyers. We send battleships. Uh, we send stealth bombers. Nobody is more powerful than we are. Now, that's where Israel was at this particular moment. They, now, think about it. Think what had happened. Uh, the power of their God... Um, he parts the Jordan River for them, and we know from the conversation the spies had with Rahab, they remembered, the people in the land remembered what God had done 40 years before in opening the Red Sea. And they were absolutely demoralized, and just absolutely they turned to water, knowing that the Israelites were out there. And then 40 years later, they finally cross, and once again, they're just demoralized. There's, there's no... There's no unction in them, in their enemies. Because these, there's no stopping these guys. Then they go take on Jericho, and they just walk around. They just walk around, and then the seventh day they walk around a few more times, and then they shout, and, the, and it just folds like a pancake. I, I love those pictures on TV when they show those buildings, those demolitions of those big buildings. Don't you? I love those. I mean... There's just something about my nature. I love to see those things destroyed. Because they do it so efficiently and so cleanly. And they just, those floors, just, it's just like an accordion coming down. I mean, there's no mess. There's no excess. There's no residue. It's just... A couple bulldozers come in there, clean it up. Dump truck, boom, cleaned up. It's unbelievable how they do that. That's essentially what happened at Jericho. So understand the strength of Israel. Uh, quite frankly, uh, Israel was invulnerable. Nobody could stand in there. I mean, nobody could stand in their way. So now they're going to go to the second city, Ai, and with that in mind, let's read that verse again. He sends guys up there, Joshua does. He says, spy out the land. They come back, they return to Joshua and said to him, don't let all the people go up. It's not necessary. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Don't make all the po people toil up there, for there are few. You see, our God's powerful. He's going to go with us. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there. But catch this. But they fled from the men of Ai. Uh, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them down on the descent, 
So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. In verse 1, you have the disobedience of Achan. In verses 2 through 5, you have a devastating defeat. And the thing that should be noticed is that the two are interlinked. Verse 1 is the cause. Verses 2 through 5 is the effect. You've got disobedience in verse 1. Then you've got defeat in verses 2 through 5. The last thing that they would have ever expected was to go up to Ai and been defeated. I mean, that was no more in their minds. That was the furthest thing from their minds. And you'll see the confusion that's in, um, that's in Joshua's heart in verse 6. Look at his response. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Why? Because they lost 36 men up there. I mean, they can't believe what had happened. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why didst thou ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? In, in other words, we had to cut and run from these guys. And do you not think that's going to get out? Do you not think that they're going to hear about this? These cities? We, Look at this. Just technical difficulties here, guys. Starting to bother me. Starting to upset me. Is this on tape? All right. Here we go. I was getting upset there for a minute. Here's, here's the deal. They were, they were just getting started. They'd had two major victories, and now they had, to, they had to cut and run. And that's the last thing that he wanted to happen because, you see, quite frankly, apart from the power of God, they had nothing to withstand these other cities and these other nations. Look what he says in verse 9. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Uh, that, what he means is, they're going to destroy us. They'll cut off our name from the earth. And, and by the way, gentlemen, let, let's make an application here. In all that's going on, even today in Israel, that's the issue. That's the issue. They want to drive Israel into the sea, and they want to destroy them. We've talked about that before in here. When Barack, the former prime minister, met with Arafat when Clinton was trying to get that deal together, Barack basically offered him 90% of the land. Now, if you're in a negotiation and somebody offers you 90% of what you're after, you probably ought to take it. I mean, you can go to these negotiating seminars if you fly on American Airlines, there's some guy named Chester Karras. And he takes out these full, four-page, full-color ads in every issue of American Airlines magazine. And he talks about negotiation. I haven't ever been to a seminar, but I would guarantee you, he would tell you in that seminar, if somebody offers you 90% of what you're trying to get, you probably ought to take it. But Arafat turned it down. Why did he turn it down? Because what they want is, they want the whole thing and they want to destroy Israel, and they want to drive them into the sea. That was Joshua's concern all the way back here. Now, he says, and what will do that, and what will thou do 
for thy great name. Because you see, ultimately, that has to do with the honor and with the name of God. Um, Joshua doesn't understand what has happened. And he doesn't understand the whole picture. Now, notice the response. Notice the response that God gives him in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn, back, uh, they turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you've removed the things under the ban from your midst. What has happened is, the reason that they lost at Ai is that they were under the judgment of God. I want you to note two things in verse 11. Note the word covenant. You see that? They have also transgressed my covenant. And then also note, if you would, uh, uh, in verse 12, note the word accursed. Because, because they transgressed the covenant, they've become accursed. Now, if you've been in this study for a while, we have talked about the importance of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, there are certain chapters in the Old Testament that are pivotal. There are certain chapters uh, in Scripture that are, um, uh, that are pivotal, that are significant, that uh, give explanation to other things that happen and occur. Uh, flip over with me to Deuteronomy 28, because I want you to understand what he's talking about here. You violated my covenant, and you are accursed. In, in Deuteronomy 28, God made this deal with these guys that was absolutely unbelievable. All, you only have to remember two things about Deuteronomy 28. Blessings and curses. That's it. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you will obey the Lord your God. Isn't that a great picture? They'll, they'll overtake you. They'll pursue you. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me, Psalm 23 says, will overtake me all the days of my life. Uh, I've been overtaken uh, by a cop. <laughs> it happened to me Friday night, as a matter of fact. Uh, I've been overtaken by a um, cornerback, little sucker. <laughs> Run the 100 in about 6'2". You know, I mean, just blinding speed. I'm going about 9'3 in the 100. No, just kidding. <laughs> You know what it is to have someone overtake you. They're pursuing you hotly. 
God says, if you're careful to obey me, to diligently obey, my blessings will overtake you. And then what he does is, he goes and enumerates all these things that God will do for these guys because of the covenant he has made for them, if they will obey. This, to me, is one of the most astonishing chapters of the Old Testament. Because basically God says, hey guys, you know what I'm going to do? You obey me, you're careful to obey me, and my word... Basically, God was going to pull up a dump truck of blessing and favor and goodness and just give it to these guys. He was going to pursue them. He was going to overtake them. And when you read through this stuff that God promises to do for them, you're just amazed at what God would do, how, how good and how kind and how gracious, uh, talking about their health and about their wives and about not miscarrying and about their... Their, um, their livestock and about their crops. and God will make you the head and not the tail. Verse 13. Um, but then you get to verse 15. And it says, But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now what's interesting is, when you read the list of curses, the curses are three times longer than the blessings. And they're very detailed, and they're very clear, and quite frankly, quite frankly, when you read, when, when, when you look at these curses, and, and you, know what, you know what happened to Israel historically, is that they historically did not follow the Lord. And they got off into idolatry, and they got into idol worship, and they got into worshiping sex, and Baal, and Moloch, and ch sacrificing their children to these fire gods, they got involved in the most heinous things you can imagine. Well, all the curses of Deuteronomy 28 came upon the Jews. If you want to understand what's happened to the Jewish people, you just read Deuteronomy 28. So, you got Achan. Achan is not careful to obey. Achan goes in like a bulldozer motivated by his own greed, violates the ban. They go up to Ai, thinking they're going to take Ai without any sweat. They lose 36 guys. Joshua is in absolute dismay, calls out to God. And what does God say to him? You violated my covenant, and that's why you're cursed. This was the judgment of God on his people. Now, let's go back to uh, Joshua 7, and let's notice... Let's notice the direction that God now is going to give uh, to Joshua on how to take care of this, of this problem. Um, we picked up some of it already. Um, in verse 13, he says, Consecrate the people. Uh, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, because these things, are, we're, we're, these things are in the midst of you that are under the ban. Look at verse 14. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes. So what he's doing is he's taking the whole nation, and he's going to break them up into tribes, the twelve tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. You know, the scripture says your sin will find you out. And here's a process... They were, going to, they were going to go tribe, they were going to go families, they were going to go households, they are going to go man to man. And 
Notice verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel nearby tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. So by this system of lots that they used, it's the tribe of Judah. Now you know the guys in the tribe of Judah got to be sweating. Everybody else has this tremendous feeling of relief. But they know it's, they've zeroed in now on the tribe of Judah. And then it says, and he brought the family of Judah near. Then he took the family of Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Here's your culprit right here. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Well, how is he going to hide it after that process? You know how they say that there's pleasure in sin for a season? That was a pretty short season. Can you imagine what this guy had to be thinking when Joshua called all the tribes and he said, all right, it's Judah. Then boom, 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 boom. He says, don't hide it to me. He he says in verse 19, I implore you, give glory to God. Tell me what you've done. Achan answered Joshua and said, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw the spoil, a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, uh, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent and the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Um, you know, Jesus said in Luke 12:3 that the things that are done in darkness will be known in the light. There is, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as secret sin. Now we think there is, and we try to um, we, we try to be architects of our lives so that we can do things that we think no one will ever find out about. But the fact of the matter is, and just about every guy in this room can attest to this by personal experience, your sin will find you out. Um, no secret sin. Although we, we continue to fall for that lie, that I can carve out an area of my life, and I can live in rebellion, and I can live contrary to the truth of God as a believer, and... And it's going to be okay. Somehow, I'm going to pull this thing off. That is the ultimate deception. You are not going to pull it off. Uh, it, it, it will come back to haunt you. It will, it will become public. Uh, and see, here's, here's where we lack vision. Let me ask you something. Have you, ever, have you ever asked yourself what it would be like? Because we're all tempted. We, uh, we're just a bunch of guys. Has it ever crossed your mind what it would be like to have to sit down with your teenage daughter and tell her eye to eye why you have committed adultery and been unfaithful to her mother and brought shame and disrepute upon her and her siblings? 
Do you guys ever think about that? But you see, that's how we need to think. Where the enemy gets us and where he traps us and where he snares us is that somehow he, he cons us into just focusing on the immediate gratification that will come from the wrong act. And somehow thinking we'll be able, we'll be able to, to cover that. You, you know what? Every crook think he's, thinks he's smarter than everybody else. I mean, he's going to pull this off and nobody's going nobody's to find I mean, today of all days, they're going to find out. They got DNA. I mean, the, the, the finger. I mean, it's just it's just nuts. But you say, well, Steve, I'm not. It's not a crime. I'm not talking about crime or robbing men. Yeah, yeah, I know. But see, the enemy will think he'll make you think that in this particular area you can pull this off and not be found out. See, that's just absolute foolishness. Because the scripture says that you will be found out. See, we rarely think about. What will be the consequences of this act that right now looks so appealing and so wonderful and will bring such happiness? The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. There's a, there's a process that takes place that, we, that, that Achan actually delineates. And uh, he, he tells the process that led him into his, quote-unquote, secret sin. Uh, let me show you what it is. In talking to Joshua, he made four statements about what he did. Number one, he saw. He saw. Um, this is an issue of the eyes. He saw with his eyes something he didn't have that he wanted. So first of all, he was deceived with his eyes. With his eyes. So number one, he saw. Number two, he coveted. A mantle, a beautiful coat, and the shekels of silver and the bar of gold. I coveted them. And then he says, and took them. That's number three. And behold, they are concealed. That's number four. So he saw, he coveted, he took, he concealed. That's the process that every single one of us are vulnerable to in different areas of our lives. J. Vernon McGee wrote this a long time ago. The worst enemy that you have is yourself. He occupies the same skin that you occupy. He uses the same brain that you use in thinking his destructive thoughts. He uses the same hands that you use to perform his own deeds. This enemy can do you more harm than anybody else in the world. He is the greatest handicap that you have in your daily Christian life. There are two factors that make dealing with this enemy doubly difficult. In the first place, we are reluctant to recognize and identify him. We are loath to label him as an enemy. The fact of the matter is most of us rather like him. The second problem is that he is on the inside of us. If he would only come out and fight like a man, it would be different, but he will not. 
It is not because he is a coward, but because he can fight better from his position within. Then McGee says, Nations, cities, churches, and individuals have been destroyed by the enemy within. Russia fell to the communist a hundred years ago, not because of the German pressure on the outside, but because of this doctrine fomenting on the inside. Then he writes, any individual can be destroyed from the inside. Alexander the Great was probably the greatest military genius who ever moved armies across the pages of history. There has been no one like him since. Before the age of 35, he had conquered the world, but he died a drunkard. He had conquered the world, but he could not conquer Alexander the Great. There was an enemy within him that destroyed him. And that same enemy was in Achan, and the same enemy is within us, you see. Um, he saw, he saw. We're, uh, we're big in the LASIK surgery. Can't hardly listen to the radio for 15 minutes without hearing about Dr. Booth. <laughs> I don't know who that guy is, but I think he's doing pretty well. And then there are three or four or five other doctors that are all advertising LASIK surgery. And they got their different spokesmen, and people have had it done, and all that, you know, and they got the price down, and all this, and, you know, LASIK surgery. Because, you see, everybody's after 2020. What you really need is 2020 spiritually. That's what you really need to see. You see, is to get that, that eyesight, to get that night vision going. See, to see what's really out there. Because you see, again, we tend to only focus on the immediate gratification of whatever it is that is tempting us and promising us. But you see, that's very blurry vision. That's very dull vision. That's not accurate vision because, because you're being deceived. Uh, he saw, then he coveted. Uh, the last commandment is, uh, of the ten is, thou shalt not covet. Coveting is seeing something that you don't have and being willing to undertake any effort in order to attain it. And that's death. Uh, he saw, he coveted, he took, and then here's what's amazing. This is what's really amazing. He concealed. He concealed. See, here's the foolishness. Because he gets this robe, unbelievable robe. Unbelievable coat. He gets it, takes the money, he, he, he sees it, he covets it, takes it, and then he's got to bury it. Can he enjoy it? No. No. Because if he comes out wearing it, everybody's going to know. Can he start spending it? No. No. You see, because, because it's under the ban. See, there's the foolishness of not looking ahead at the consequences of what he's being tempted to do. So let's just pull this down right here where all of us are living. And here's my question to you tonight. What is it? What is it that you are being tempted about that would cause you to cross the biblical line as he crossed it 
because you think that immediate happiness is going to accrue in your life, and after all, you're absolutely miserable. And you deserve it. And this really will make you happy. I'll never forget as long as I live. When I was a young rookie pastor, and I'm sitting at my desk, and I got this guy sitting across from me who had to be 60, 61, 62. And this guy, he was a big guy, number one. 6'4", six, 6'5", six, big man, very imposing man. Uh, the reason we were meeting, uh, this guy was on numerous ministry boards, uh, was uh, very successful and was a big giver and uh, actually had started his own youth camp and was known in the Christian community in this part of the United States. Now, the reason we were meeting in my office was not to talk about him mentoring some younger guys or uh, teaching a class on marriage or any of that stuff. The reason we were meeting in my office was to discuss why he was in sexually involved with a 19-year-old girl that was attending his Christian camp even though he had children that were older than she was. And he had a wife. And he was a member of this church that I was pastoring. And I'll never forget this guy. I mean, we're, we're talking. And I, I have a very uh, sophisticated approach to counseling. <laughs> when, when I see a scab, I pick it. And here was a scab. You couldn't miss it. And uh, I'll never forget this. I mean, this guy was amazing to me. His rationalization. He would even give scripture to me. And after about 30 minutes, he just finally, he just lost it. He just got mad. And I'll never forget, out of total frustration, he just took his fist and just banged it on the desk. And he looked at me and he said, don't I have a right to be happy? That was it. That's all that theological training that's thousands of sermons this guy heard. This guy would go to a church like Stonebriar. I mean, this guy was as, as doctrinally conservative as anybody you'd ever meet. As he's sleeping with this 19-year-old chick, if you, and if he had met some moderate Southern Baptist, he would have gone to the mat with this sucker on inerrancy. You know what I'm talking about? If somebody didn't believe in inerrancy, he'd be all over you. Just like he was all over this 19-year-old chick in the sack. See, you, see, you see the foolishness there? But ultimately, you got right down to it. We're talking, we're analyzing what's going on. His, his whole theology was, in justifying this, this, this chick, was, don't I have a right to be happy? Amazing. Amazing. He dropped dead in his front yard 90 days later. Drop dead. No history of heart problems. No, guy was in phenomenal health. And he just suddenly died. I think God took him. I think, I think God tried to get through to him, and God tried to get through to him, and God tried to get through to him, and God tried to get through to him. I think it was an Ananias and Sapphira deal. You know what's interesting about this? About this whole deal with, uh, with uh, Achan? Is that in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, is that right? 
That is right. Yeah, I'm, I'm just having a brain freeze there for a minute. Uh, the word that is used to describe the sin of Achan is the same word that is used to describe the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Isn't that something? Because here we look at this, because, because what happened to this guy, Achan, by the way? We really ought to look at that because that's fairly important. Here's what happened. So Joshua sent messengers. We're in verse 22. And they ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought him to the valley of Achor, which literally means the valley of trouble. And Joshua said to him, Why have you troubled us? Because, you see, he had troubled them. Because 36 men died because of this guy. 36 good men. 36 men that it had nothing to do with stealing died as a direct result of this guy. Why? Because we never sin alone. The sin of an individual will inevitably affect the corporate entity. That's why if I sin, it affects my family. If you sin, it affects your family. If I sin, it affects this church. If you sin, it affects this body of believers. See, this is serious stuff. We, we, we are the, this American John Wayne, the independent man. That's a farce. Nobody's independent. We're all interdependent. We're interconnected. 30, he troubled Israel because of his end. 36 men died. Now, why have you troubled us? Verse 25. The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones. Now, literally, it's, and all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble, to this day. Now, let me say a couple things here. This is a tough text. First thing I want to say is this. In Deuteronomy 24.16, the scripture is very clear that children are not to be executed for the sins of their fathers. Deuteronomy 24.16. So, here's what I deduce from that. The fact that he and his whole household were killed has to mean that his family were aware of what he was doing and they were accomplices to the fact. Don't get the idea here that these were little infant, little two or three-year-olds running around because God would not do that. God would not violate his character. These, this family, these were adults who were fully aware and complicit with what he was doing. It's important to understand. All right, let, let, me give you, let me give you a few shots here. Here's number one. Individual sin always brings corporate judgment. Adam sinned. It's affected everyone in the history of the world without exception, except Jesus. 
Achan sinned, it affected his entire family. Now, why would God be so severe here? Well, because sin had to be rooted out of the nation. Because you see, the basis on which God was going to fight for them as they went into the promised land, God's favor and God's goodness was based on their obedience to His word. And you had disobedience here. Here's a couple applications. Number one, a corrupt individual can corrupt a family. A corrupt family can corrupt an entire tribe. A, correct, a, a corrupt tribe can corrupt the entire nation. You see, here is a guy who willfully, in a premeditative way, violated the clear, known will of God. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I read a quote from Thomas Watson about what happens when a belief... Do you realize in the Old Testament there was no sacrifice for premeditated, purposeful sin? There are some guys that teach grace... And they're what we call antinomians, antinomos, nomos being law. They they completely disregard uh, the scriptures and the law of God. Paul said, "Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound?" Then what did he say? May it never be. You see, we don't presume on the grace of God. In other words, if you ever have the thought, "Well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do this, and I'm going to ask God for forgiveness." You're a fool. Because what Thomas Watson put so well a couple weeks ago is that if you're a believer, God will not take away your salvation, but he will just send you to hell in this life. Don't you think you can get away without without the discipline of God? Any more than you let your child who willfully, purposefully, disobeys you, disrespects his mother, you cannot let that happen in your family, can you? So you've got to deal with it. Now, I wrote down a couple things about this event. Number one, I'm giving you all kinds of numbers here. I don't even know the order. I'm just firing them out. This is number 17, guys, on page 14. I got so many sticky notes on here, I can't even tell you about them. I gave you principles. These are now observations. I don't know what they are. Number one, discipline was swift. It was swift. Isn't it interesting how far our culture has come away from the Scriptures? In our legal system, is discipline swift? Gosh, what a joke. We file brief after brief, stay after stay, attorney after attorney. It's, it's a mockery. God's discipline was swift. 
Here's the next one. God's discipline was severe. It was severe. This stuff is never fun, and this stuff is never enjoyable, but there are times in all of our lives in the leadership situations that God has put us in where we will be called at times when, when there is a, and let me make this clear, when there is a situation where sin has occurred that is clear and that has been premeditated and where there is no repentance, It has to be dealt with. And yes, there's mercy, and yes, there's grace, and yes, we talk and we do, but when there's a point where the line has been crossed and you understand the condition of somebody's heart, there needs to be discipline, it needs to be swift. Number two, it needs to be severe. There's a passage in 1 Timothy, I think it's 5, it's either 19 or verse 22, that says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses and then rebuke him in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sin. Hmm. We talked a couple weeks ago about the fear of the Lord. You see, it's occasions like this that bring about the fear of the Lord. That God means what he says, and God is a God of justice and of righteousness. And you see, when... When God steps in and shows his discipline, what it does in the rest of the corporate body is it puts fear. And it's a healthy thing. Fourteen times in Proverbs, you've got the fear of the Lord mentioned. And one of the things it says is the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Because, you see, we tend to be stupid. And we tend to go off half-cocked and do things we shouldn't do. But when we understand that God is serious or you've had it happen in your life, I had it happen with my dad, when I knew my dad was serious, and I felt the weight and the severity of his discipline and punishment, that's when I started to learn. Just the way we are. Here's the third one. Discipline was costly. It was costly. And it costs this guy his life. You see, that's where it's got to be severe sometimes in order to save somebody's life. Here's the next one. Discipline was to be remembered. Remembered. Do you think from here on out, and you know what's interesting about the rest of Joshua? Every time, what we're going to see is next week, they go take AI. All right, God says, all right, let's, let's do this again. And they were really careful to do exactly what he said. Every single one of them. Because they remembered. And, and from here on out, whenever they take a city, they were pretty careful. They were, they were real careful to remember because of what happened, because they learned from the severity and the swiftness. Earlier in Joshua, we saw that when they crossed into the promised land, they set up the memorial stones to tell their children about the goodness of God and the grace of God. They did the exact same thing here. Did you see that? Verse 25. After they stoned them with stones, verse 26, and they raised over him 
a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. About 14 miles away from where the two piles of stones were, one in the middle of the Jordan River, one on the west bank of the Jordan River, that reminded them of the grace and power of God, about 14 miles away to the west is another pile of stones that they put up that were memorial stones as well to remind them as a memorial forever of the justice and discipline and severity of God. Why? Because they needed to fear the Lord in order to have wisdom and in order to have knowledge and in order to have a long life. I wrap this up with four principles from Francis Schaeffer. <laughs> we now have 97 principles here, I think, tonight. I got this from Schaefer in his little book on Joshua. It's just good stuff. It's a good wrap-up. Here's number one. He says, when we sin knowingly, God knows. Number two. When we sin knowingly, the blessing of God slows or stops. I'll give you that again. When we sin knowingly, the blessing of God slows or stops. Now, let me interrupt Schaefer here. What happens when... In genuine repentance and brokenness, you go before God and confess that sin. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. And then the blessing returns because you've dealt with the sin. Okay? Here's the third one. There will be judgment either from ourselves in confession or from God. Let me do that again. There will be judgment either from ourselves in confession of our sin or judgment from God. You can use the term discipline if you'd like. And here's number four, and we've already hit it. If we confess in genuine repentance, the blessing of God returns. I'll say it again. If we confess in genuine repentance, the blessing of God returns. Uh, secret sin will ruin your life. Uh, secret sin is a, is a slow-moving cancer that picks up speed uh, that can only end in, uh, in heartache and heartbreak. Uh, you know, the scripture says examine yourself to see if you be of the faith. Sometimes we can get like Israel... They were strong, they were mighty, quite frankly, they thought they were invulnerable. 
and sometimes after a great victory or after a great run or after some great things have happened or a great ministry or blessing on your business or things are going well. You see, we don't mean to be that way, but it can happen. And we're very susceptible and we're very vulnerable. Here's what I'd like us to do tonight. I'd like us just to take about three or four minutes. And I'd like us to be quiet. And uh, let's just bow our heads before the Lord. And let's ask the Lord. And let's examine ourselves. Lord, is there an area in my life where I've presumed upon you? Is there an area where I'm not pleasing you? Is it, and, and I want to tell you something. It's not going to take three minutes to figure this out. Whenever we do that, it's immediate and it's pretty clear. And so then, let me say this to you. Then deal with that before the Lord. Take that to him. He knows about it anyway. And let's just take some time to pray and to ponder and to examine our hearts. We usually do this when we take communion. We don't, we don't have the elements tonight. But let's do this in our heart. And then I'll close us in prayer. And guys, as we continue to uh, wait on the Lord, let me, let me remind you in this spirit of prayer the four things that took place in Achan's heart. The first thing was that he saw. And let's ask this question. Is there anything you're seeing, is there anything you're looking at that you don't have? that you would really like to have. And you're pondering, crossing a biblical line to obtain. That's something that must be identified. And then secondly, he coveted. From down deep, from down deep, he had to have it. And he thought he had to have it to fulfill him and make him happy. And he deceived himself. And then number three, he took. And then number four, he concealed. Lord, we have all concealed these things in our hearts in some way, shape, or form. And I am reminded of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, if we admit our sin, that's just the opposite of concealing. If we uncover it, if we dig it out of the ground and hold it up and acknowledge it to you, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. We, we have been looking tonight at your, uh, at your justice and at your severity and at your discipline. But, Father, we don't have to enter into that. That's not something you delight in doing 
that's not a road we have to take. We don't have to go through this hardship if we would simply submit our hearts to you and listen to you. So, Father, what we're asking here is that you would help us to live wisely instead of foolishly. Lord, these things that are concealed are eating us alive. So we admit them to you and receive mercy and forgiveness and grace and your favor and blessing. And oh, how we desire that. We don't want to live in trouble, Lord. We want to live in your favor. So I pray for each guy here. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to come clean with you in the deepest recesses of our heart. When we don't, we bring trouble on our families, on our wives, on our kids. And we don't want to do that. More importantly, we sin against you and you only. Lord, this week, keep us sharp. Give us spiritual 2020 to see the snares and the traps and the ambushes that the enemy would put in our way. Help us to see the strategies of the devil and to resist him and to flee immorality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week, Wednesday night.